been meaning to say for ages that there's lots and lots more episodes of my podcast on Patreon. So if you were to look for author Steph Young, Patreon, which is P-A-T-R-E-O-N, you'll find lots and lots more episodes of the podcast that I've been doing for four years. And I just forgot to say, thank you. The Age Evening News of Oklahoma on August the 11th, 1919, wrote a most disturbing account about a beast called the Hound of Mons. Mons was the scene of a terrible battlefield in Belgium during World War I. For years, they said, civilian sceptics laughed at the soldiers' tales of a giant skulking hound which stalked among the corpses and shell holes of no man's land and dragged down British soldiers to their deaths. An apparition of fear, they said. But to the soldiers, it was a reality of the most fearful thing. Fusiliers entered no man's land on a patrol. The last living trace of them was when they started into the darkness between the lines. Days afterwards, their bodies were found. They'd been dragged down, with teeth marks at their throats. Several nights later, a blood-curdling howl was heard from the darkness. Patrol after patrol ventured out, only to be found later with the telltale marks at their throats. Several times, sentries declared, they saw a lean, grey wraith flit past, the form of a gigantic hound running silently. But civilians always doubted the stories. And now, a Captain Newhouse says, secret papers have been taken from the residence of the late Dr. Hockmuller, which prove the hellhound of Mons was a terrible living reality a giant hound with the human brain of a madman. Newhouse says the papers show this hound was the only successful experiment by which Dr. Hockmuller hoped to end the war in Germany's favour. The scientist, Dr. Hockmuller, had gone about the wards of German hospitals until he found a man gone mad as a result of his hatred of England. The patient, with the sanction of the German government, was operated on and his brain removed taking in particular the parts which dominated hatred and frenzy. At the same time, the same type of operation was performed on a giant Siberian wolfhound. His brain was taken out and the brain of the madman inserted. The man died, but the dog was nursed and thrived. After careful training in fiendishness, the wolfhound was taken to no man's land, where it was unleashed. During the Second World War in Gateshead, a town in Tynham Weir, northern England, a little boy called Robert Hall was out with his friend. They'd been sitting on a wall near his home watching the British soldiers march by, getting ready to deploy for Europe to fight. It was a cold winter's day and they'd become hungry, so they decided to head back home. They turned off Saltwell Road into an alley that was a shortcut home. As they were walking up the alley they suddenly saw some kind of shield in place across the alley, which, said the little boy, was translucent and looked like the shimmer of a heat haze. But they found a gap, as it didn't reach right down to the ground, and so they got down on their knees and squeezed under it. When they stood up on the other side of the hazy shield, they continued walking, but near the end of the alley they suddenly stopped. There, in front of them, was a large group of strange beings. The little boy said they all varied in size and shape, and it appeared obvious to him at first sight that these were not soldiers, nor any regular people either. They were, said the five-year-old, horrible-looking. He said they were grey in colour, but there was also one that stood out the most, and this one was a large, furry creature. 
that sounded like the description of a Bigfoot. Another of the creatures appeared to be dressed in some sort of diving outfit, like a deep-sea diver. There was also a figure that looked very much like a praying mantis, and it was very big. There were also small, gnome-like creatures, as well as tall, blonde, blue-eyed, non-humans, while another figure had long flowing hair and a coat that partially covered a skeletal body and bat wings. There was an entire menagerie of creatures there. The figures appeared to be gathered around some sort of oval craft, the boy said. According to the Northern Echo, Robert found himself being led away by the creature, along with his friend, and taken onto their craft. Once inside the craft, Robert says they drained some blood from a vein in his neck. The creatures told him that he must keep still while they were draining his blood, because if he moved, he would die. He was so terrified that he made sure he did not move at all. At the same time as this was happening to Robert, a group of children who were nearby had also come upon the same collection of strange creatures, and by now they were hysterical. Said the newspaper, other children were petrified and in shock. They were trying to get over the railway track, but there was barbed wire there and they were getting cut, and they were screaming. As the children all tried to flee, they were stopped by a huge black dog that barred their way and growled at them indicating clearly to them that if they moved it would bite them. Meanwhile, somehow Robert succeeded in escaping, and he said that he ran to the nearest soldier and told him everything. He implored the soldier to go back to the scene with him so that he could show him what had happened. The soldier himself caught sight of the craft as it was leaving the alley, and it was said that he opened fire on it with his gun. At this point panic ensued, as gunfire was not a common occurrence in England. Three days later, one of the creatures apparently returned. The little boy said that it came back and began chasing after him. It happened when Robert left his house and was making his way to the local shop. As he made his way through a different back alley, he suddenly became aware that he was not on his own. One of the little grey creatures was running after him fast. Fortunately, Robert made it to his uncle's house close by, but the creature was still in pursuit. His uncle, Humphrey Dunhead, on seeing the creature, apparently picked up a nearby coal shovel and smashed it across the face, killing it. They summoned a policeman who was walking along the street on patrol, and the policeman, Sergeant Brooks, suggested they place the creature in a coal sack and take it to the graveyard of St Cuthbert's Church nearby and hide it there. Robert, now a retired window cleaner, contacted veteran investigator Richard D. Hall of Rich Planet TV. He told the researcher that the next day two men with black suits came to his house and warned him that if he said anything, he would disappear. After that, he said, he witnessed men in white overalls coming and going from the churchyard, and he said there was a door-to-door -door search of people's houses, as if the government was looking for something. He also said that a strange man often used to follow him to school. He said the man was very frightening. Norman Oliver wrote of a most curious encounter in Before Us, the British UFO Research Journal, Volume 6, Number 5, of January 78. It concerns a strange incident which took place on the Isle of Wight. It was a Tuesday afternoon around 4pm when a young girl called Faye and her young male friend were out playing in Sandown on the eastern side of the island. Suddenly, they began to hear a strange wailing sound which they likened to being similar to an ambulance siren. They tried to work out where the sound was coming from and they followed the sound across a golf course and through a hedge that led them to a swampy meadow adjacent to the little used airport. 
As they were crossing a wooden footbridge over a narrow brook, a blue-gloved hand appeared from under the bridge, and a strange figure emerged. The figure was carrying a book, which fell into the water, and the figure delved into the water to retrieve it. Then the figure walked to a metal hut nearby. The children described that the figure moved along with a strange hopping motion, with knees raised high. The hut the figure entered was about 50 metres from where the children were standing, and they watched as the figure, who appeared to be male, reappeared from the hut, now carrying a big microphone, like news reporters use, with a white lead attached to it. The sound of the wailing now got louder, to such an intensity, that the boy began to take off running. Immediately the wailing stopped, and the figure began to speak to the children through the microphone. Hello, are you still there? he asked. The children felt that his voice was friendly sounding, and so they began to walk closer to the man. He was no normal looking man, however. Oliver calls him an oddly attired person, and the children's description was as such. He was nearly seven feet tall and had no neck. His head appeared to be wedged straight onto his shoulders. He wore a yellow pointed hat that seemed joined to the red collar of a green tunic. A black knob was attached to the top of his hat, along with wooden antenna, which hung on either side of his hat. His face had triangular markings for eyes, a brown square for a nose, and motionless yellow lips. Round markings were on his paper-white cheeks, and he had a fringe of red hair. There were wooden slats protruding from his tunic sleeves, and from beneath his trousers, which were white. This odd-looking fellow began to write in a notebook with a large hand. He wrote, Hello, and I am all colours, Sam. The man did not write this in a linear fashion as we write, but in a weird pattern. Then he began to talk again, though his lips never moved. The children described his speech as like someone who does not open his mouth properly. The children said he began to ask them about themselves, and so the children also then asked him questions too. They asked about his clothes, which were all ripped. He told them he only had one set of clothes, so he could only wear the ones he had on. Obviously curious about his rather bizarre appearance, the children asked him if he was really a man. The answer was a chuckled, no. They asked, was he a ghost? The vague reply was, well not really, but I am in an odd way. What are you then? the children asked, but only obtained the answer, you know, with no further explanation. He also said he had no name. He told the children there were others like him. He told them he was frightened of people because he thought they might hurt him. He said he lived on berries that he picked in the wild. He invited the children to go into his hut with him, and once inside he picked up a berry. He placed the berry in his ear, thrust his head forward, and caused the berry to reappear at one of his eyes. Repeating the process, the berry travelled to his mouth. The children said they stayed talking with him for another half an hour or so, and then bid him goodbye, and ran off back the way they'd come. The first adult they came across they told they'd seen a ghost. The adult laughed. It was to be three weeks before Faye told her father about the experience. Of course, at first he believed she made the story up, and he told her so, although he was really amazed at the intricate level of detail she gave. He said there was such an extraordinary amount of detail, which also included that the creature had only three fingers on each blue-gloved hand, and three toes on his bare white feet. 
which Oliver says making a hoax would be then somewhat difficult, and indeed, why go to all that trouble? The girl's father said that in the end, I get the impression that Faye was somehow taken into a bubble of alien reality created by this strange personage. His daughter had told him that there were two workmen nearby at the little-used airport when they'd met the strange fellow, yet the workmen had paid no attention to the weird charade, as though they could not see it. Clarita's Monster as a young girl in 1953, Clarita Villanueva grew up attending tarot card reading sessions held by her mother, until her mother died, leaving Clarita alone at the age of 18. She found herself homeless on the streets in the city of Manila in the Philippines, and she was believed to have turned to prostitution as the only means of providing food for herself. One night, she was arrested for solicitation and taken to the police station. And it was there that the most horrific scenes started to be played out. Clarissa was locked up in a cell with other female prisoners, but the guards were soon startled when some time later they heard the most blood-curdling screams coming from the cell. The guards ran to open the door of the cell and they discovered Clarissa lying on the floor, her body covered in bite marks. Her arms, legs and her back were covered with bites. She was rushed to the nearest hospital, where the doctors treating her declared they'd never seen anything like it. These were not human bite marks, they said. They were too big. When Clarita was returned to the prison cell after hospital treatment, the biting continued to occur daily. She was now the only person in her cell. The prison guards didn't know what to do, and the prison doctor appealed for help from other doctors, scientists, and the clergy too and soon the media would learn about it. According to the Barrier Minor newspaper of May 1953, Clarita would scream out that a black figure was biting her, yet the figure was invisible to everyone but her. The bite marks, however, were very real. A photograph in the newspaper showed the city mayor at the prison with the prison doctor, Dr Lana, both holding on to Clarita as she writhed from the assault of the invisible black thing that was leaving great bite marks on her. She described these monsters to anyone who would listen. When one doctor accused her of making it all up for attention, Clarissa's face took on a look of great anger, and she told him, you will die. The next day, the doctor died. Fear spread through the prison. One prison guard kicked her in anger. She told him he would be next to die. He died four days later. Dr. Lara, the medical examiner for the police department and a professor of pathology, described what happened in his official reports. He said, I don't accept anything supernatural, but with a magnifying glass I scrutinised the bite marks on the body carefully, and at that very moment this girl screamed as I saw with my own eyes clear teeth marks appear. I could not explain how they were produced. I asked her who was doing it. She said there were two of them. One was big, black, very tall, with sharp eyes, wearing a black hooded garment. She said that his voice was very deep, with an echo to it, like being in a tunnel. The second being she described as smaller, hairy and deformed. Both were horrific to look at, she said. It was these entities that were torturing her. Well, a pastor called Lester Sumrall felt the need to go and offer his help. He wrote in his journal, I've never seen such a fearful group of people as those I met that day in the prison. They were afraid this thing would kill them, as it had the others who had dared to cross it. 
They did not know what to do. It was beyond their knowledge. The prisoner was being bitten by an unseen entity, being wildly attacked. But no one could see the entity. Nor did they know any solution. They all wondered who would be the next to die. As Coloretta was led into the room to see the pastor, she looked at him and violently screamed. There was a battle with her, said the pastor, three days of terror trying to exorcise the entities. Well, the pastor claims that he was able to get rid of the entities. Who or what they were, of course, who knows. But the attacks upon her were witnessed by so many credible, highly respectable witnesses who were unable to help her as the unseen monsters walked through walls to get to her in her locked cell. A horrifying incident recorded by explorer Ethelbert Forbes Skirchley in an article in the Journal of the Asiatic Society of Bengal in 1896, also described in spiritual publisher Llewellyn's book Truth About Psychic Self-Defence, is a terrifying tale of a Filipino tribe living on the island of Cagayan Sinlu on the south far western tip of the Philippines who apparently lived in fear of a race of people called the Berberlangs, although they're not really people. Well, the explorer wrote, when they begin to crave human flesh, they go away into the grass, hide themselves from sight, hold their breath and fall into a trance. Their astral bodies are liberated in the form of heads, with the feet attached to the ears as wings. They fly, and entering a house, make their way into the body of one of the occupants and feed on its entrails which, of course, then he dies in fearful agony. The Berberlangs may be heard coming, as they make a moaning noise which is loud at a distance and dies away to a feeble wail as they approach. The explorer Skirchley, despite hearing so many verified tales from the villagers, was obviously sceptical. He told them he wanted to see the Berberlangs for himself. Only one young man in the village was willing to take him to where the Berberlangs lived, on the edge of the village. But when the young man got within distance of their hideout, his fear took over him and he refused to go any further. Skirtley decided to press onwards alone, but he found no one there when he reached the grasses. He returned to the village boy, and as they walked back home, it was beginning to get dark. The boy perceived the sound of wings approaching, and he pulled Skirtley to the ground to hide. He warned Skirtley that the Berberlangs were now hunting, and they watched as the Berberlangs, surrounded by strange, dancing red lights, appeared to enter the home of a villager. Well, the next day, Skirchley, concerned about the welfare of the occupants of the house, went to visit them. Finding the house surprisingly quiet and no one in the living room or kitchen, he walked towards the bedroom, where horror greeted him, for huddled upon the bed with hands clenched, face distorted, and eyes staring as in horror, the owner lay dead. Now we come to Fishman. In the early hours of June the 13th, 1968, 39-year-old motel owner Pedro Pretzel was making his way home near the town of Villa Carlo Paz in the region of Cordoba, Argentina. He was walking along the highway when he saw a strange bright red light in the sky. Some sort of machine he could not immediately identify was landing on the highway ahead of him and its light was beaming directly at the motel he owned. Inside was his 18-year-old daughter, and Pretzel began to run towards the motel. As he burst in through the front door, he found his daughter lying dead on the floor. Or rather, she looked dead, but when he checked her pulse, he was greatly relieved to discover that she was still breathing, but appeared to be unconscious. After successfully reviving his daughter, he asked her what had happened, and she told him 
She had been sitting behind the counter in the motel lobby when it became bathed in bright and intense glowing red light. She got up from her chair to look outside to see what was making this light flood the lobby so glaringly when she came face to face with a tall blonde man. She estimated that he was over six foot two inches. She said he was wearing what looked like a diver's suit of the brightest blue colour and it appeared to be made from scales. He looked like a huge tropical fish. He was covered in bright blue fish-like scales. Even stranger was that these scales appeared to be revolving. In his hand, he was holding a blue sphere, which was also revolving. At will, he appeared to be able to rise up into the air and hover in front of her. On one of his fingers, he wore a very large ring, which he began to wave in front of her face. It was at this point that she blacked out, she said. Just before she lost consciousness, bright glowing light seemed to be coming out of his hands and feet too. She said that somehow she felt the lights coming from his feet and hands were what was making her lose consciousness. Oddly, this stranger said nothing, but he had a huge fixed smile on his face that never wavered. She said she felt that he was attempting to talk to her, not through words, but she could hear him in her head although she couldn't understand what he was saying to her. Well, researchers Daniel J. Lopez and Louis Burgos interviewed the witness. They said the girl described that the man had been moving his lips slowly, speaking a strange, melodic language. He said something like, Klingling Krish, she told them. At some point, she said she felt like the sensation of bubbles in her head. Then suddenly, the bright orb light went out, and the strange man stopped what he'd been doing, spun around, and went out the door. As she turned, she said she could see he was wearing some kind of skirt around him. She recalled that he attempted to communicate with her for what felt like some time before she fell to the floor in a faint. As for the researchers Lopez and Burgos, they said, if the night visitor who arrived from who knows where had waited for the last couple to check out of the motel before entering, did the imminent arrival of Miss Pretzel's father interrupt any subsequent actions? And of course, if so, what would those actions have been? The Checkered Shirt Monster In Italy, shortly after midnight on a cold winter night of December the 6th, 1979, 26-year-old night security watchman Mr Pier Zanfretta was on his usual town patrol in the village of Torriglia. As Zanfretta approached a client's uninhabited country house, his patrol car, a Fiat 126, mysteriously stopped dead. The engine died and his headlights went out. At the same moment, he saw four lights moving about in the garden of the house he'd come to check on. He quickly got out of his car to investigate. With his gun and a flashlight in hand, he thought it had to be burglars, and as the lights went around to the back of the house, he crept along the side wall of the house quietly. Suddenly, he felt a presence behind him, then someone touching him. He spun around, bringing his flashlight up into the face of what he expected to be a burglar. There stood an enormous, green, ugly and frightful creature, with undulating skin, as though he were very fat or dressed in a loose grey tunic. No less than ten feet tall, said Zanfretta. Well, he dropped his flashlight in terror. Thankfully, he managed to get his legs to work and he fled back to his car. He called the security company's operations centre and kept repeating, My God, are they ugly, according to the radio operator Carlo Toccanini. 
He said Sanfretta was speaking in a disconnected way and in hysteria. The operator asked him if they were human. No, they aren't men. They aren't men, Sanfretta kept repeating. Then his car radio went dead. About an hour later, two of the company's security guards arrived to find Sanfretta lying on the ground. When Sanfretta became aware of them, he jumped up and started waving his gun at them. His eyes were bulging out of his head and he did not seem to realise who they were. Then, on December the 3rd of the following year, Sanfretta got out of his petrol car at a gas station and was filling the car with petrol when he claimed he heard a voice calling him from the darkness nearby. He claimed that he went toward the voice almost as though he was being compelled to do so, as though he had no choice in the matter. And what confronted him was a tall, human-looking being that had a large, bald head and was dressed in a chequered suit, wearing a grin that went from ear to ear. This odd, tall man spoke to Sanfretta without moving his lips, compelling Sanfretta to go back to his car and drive into a dark cloud that seemed to be hovering in front of him now. Sanfretta did as he was instructed and found himself and his car being levitated into this huge craft. Inside the craft, the tall, grinning man was accompanied by several other figures who looked identical to him, and Sanfretta saw transparent cylinders filled with blue liquid. Inside one of them was a frog-shaped body, which the aliens told him was an, an enemy of ours from another planet. In other cylinders, there were large, bird-like creatures, and another contained a humanoid figure that Sanfretta described as looking like a caveman. After his bewildering experiences, Sanfretta underwent hypnosis sessions to try to recover memories of what might have happened to him. And in one session, with a Dr. Moriti, Sanfretta said odd, cryptic phrases such as question with negative answer, to believe or not to believe doesn't mean anything each thing in its own time. The Monsters in El Yunque About ten years ago, some fifteen children disappeared in El Yunque while on a school trip. Writes investigator Hernes Rivera in a paper entitled Abductions in El Yunque in 1989. El Yunque is a tropical rainforest in Puerto Rico. He says the teacher responsible for the kids committed suicide because the students were never found. A search team from the US, sent to try and find the missing children, ran into a humanoid creature. As soon as the creature realised it had been seen, it ran and disappeared. The search was fruitless. No trace of the children or the creature was ever found. Two Colomb brothers, who used to live on the road that leads to the top of El Yunque, were also reported missing without a trace 25 years ago. Even armed soldiers are not immune to whatever force is behind these disappearances. In March 1976, two marines stationed at the naval facility vanished in El Yunque. Ten years later, a man named Angel Bernard and his son vanished from the same spot. They were lost for four days. Bernard encountered a red-eyed human-looking being surrounded by what he thought at first were children, only to see them vanish at lightning speed. The peals of laughter made him realise that some paranormal force was at work. Four days later, they found themselves on another trail on the far side of El Yunque, having no idea how they got there. Another Latin American researcher, Scott Corrales, has said, El Yunque has a dark side which involves human disappearances. 
A group of young people found themselves besieged by bizarre creatures during a visit to the forest. On the night of October the 20th, 1973, nine students led by three adults made camp high up on the trail for a night that would turn out to be the longest in their lives. And Mr. Herberetto Ramos was the group's leader, and he later described what happened that night. It began on their hike up the trail, when they met three people coming towards them on the trail, and it struck Ramos as odd that they were all identically dressed, and had strikingly similar features. After the group set up camp, they sat around outside their tents, and at some point that night the campers were surrounded by five or six vaguely humanoid figures who darted about the thick vegetation with claw-like hands and elongated ears. Some of the monsters blocked the trail that constituted the only way back down to safety. Ramos described one of the monsters as having a triangular head and extraordinary eyes. For endless hours until the sky began to lighten, the besieged campers were surrounded by beings who remained in constant motion around them. Terror led one of the students to bang himself repeatedly on the head with the flashlight in the hope of escaping the situation by passing out. At sunrise, the campers fled down the mountain to their cars in a desperate panic. Not a trace of the intruders remained aside from their footprints, which were much larger than humans. Who were all these strange characters and where did they all come from? <laughs>